Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null, broadcasting and video streaming live from our studios in New York City, and I welcome you. Today, no guest, you will have an opportunity to call in and share your thoughts, your questions, your opinions. We're going to talk about should you drink red wine for dental health and also a hygiene practice most people ignore. I'll bet you haven't thought of it, but I'll share it with you. A key study proves that cannabis can slow cancerous tumor growth, and we'll give you that, and a lot more on health and healing. Then from our public health segment, we'll continue with part two, and that is a special report from John Thomas from Health Impact News on the cancer industry and operation. It's time that once again it was exposed. I, I first exposed it in 1975 in a series of award-winning articles on the cancer industry. And I had a cancer insider, Pat McGrady Sr., who gave me information about how the treatments weren't working, but a lot of people was, were making money, so no one said anything. Well, that's true today also. So we'll talk about that. Then from our environmental segment, there is a new report that's about to be released. It's over 127 pages. This is from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they're saying, quote, the future of the planet is severe, pervasive, irreversible, devastating climate change. Well, that's not very good news, but what can we do about it? Also, time permitting today, I'm going to quote Thomas Edsel from the New York Times in an article, a good article he wrote, an opinion piece on the uh, op-ed page, The Expanding World of Poverty Capitalism, but he doesn't give any solutions, and I will. And also, you may think that you have nothing to hide. And therefore, why should you be concerned if the government is listening in on every phone conversation and recording it, looking at every email and recording it, collecting it, analyzing it, cataloging it? I'll tell you why. Almost everyone in America, every single person, is breaking laws, which government spying could discover and use against you. Then today we're going to have a clip uh, from a lecture at a TED conference by a gentleman. His name is Sir Thompson. It is brilliant. And it talks about what's really wrong with our educational system and how that impacts people. I've said many times on this program that our current educational system is a disgrace. It emphasizes how to take tests. If you're wealthy, you can afford tutors and people to help you. There are books that can tell you how to take the test. And so if you're diligent enough, you can pass a test. That's not the purpose of education. And all this drugging of our children, 10 million American children drugged every day, many of them committing suicide. Why? Because they're fidgety and agitated. They bore easily and they look outside. The world outside is more exciting and interesting than the world inside the classroom. They're not given green space. They're not given recess to play. Well, 
that's no reason to make up a disease, ADHD, and then label millions of kids with it. Because, let's be honest, almost every kid growing up as a baby boomer, and I'm a baby boomer, we, we looked out the windows. We daydreamed. I did all the time. We were creative. We loved, uh, we loved to experiment with life. We weren't afraid. We would have all been on drugs. Some of the greatest inventions and discoveries in social activism would never have taken place. We would have never protested because school does not want us to protest. It conditions us to be good citizens, much like Stepford Wives, drones with no capacity to challenge authority, including the teachers, the curriculum, the principals, the school boards, the school teachers' unions. They all should be challenged. But we don't. There's no single student major protest in the United States and hasn't been because we're not teaching kids how to think and what's really important in life. So this is a segment you won't want to miss. Let's begin. I was at a street fair earlier today. I finished my run and went by and there was a booth selling uh, organic wines. Uh, certified organic grapes, that's good, because regular grapes are heavily sprayed and no sulfates used, and sulfates are bad. And restaurants used to use sulfates on everything because that way you could cook stuff in the morning, put sulfates on it, and it would stay looking fresh all day. Trouble is a lot of people had allergic reactions to sulfates, including asthmatic attacks. So they got rid of the sulfates and... Uh, in some things, but not in most wine. And I was just thinking, here were the wonderful, uh, fresh, organic peaches and, and cherries and pears and nectarines and vegetables. And how few people were there. Now, this was the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and there are people who will go there throughout the day. I, I was there early. And the one down on Union Square, that gets a lot of people. But people don't realize how important grapes are. In my opinion, grapes are one of nature's most ten perfect foods. The skin, the seed, contains most of the healing. It also has what is called resveratrol that can help protect your heart against heart disease, your body from cancer. It can help slow down the aging process. It can help protect the telomeres, the caps on your genes from uh, shortening. The longer your telomeres last without shortening, the longer you live. I was inundated by people who watched a 60-minute segment where uh, the person saying, oh, we tested vitamins, and not one of them did anything. This is your typical uh, corporate educator. In point of fact, there are thousands of articles showing that nutrients such as L-carnosine, and resveratrol, and vitamin E from natural sources with tocotrienols at higher doses really work. When you look at the studies, they didn't, uh, they didn't give natural forms of vitamin E. They gave a low-potency vitamin E. So all those studies I've discussed in previous programs were flawed. I don't say they were intentionally flawed, but most science today, if it's corporate science, is grossly flawed. 
we definitely know that people can live a longer life if they take the antioxidants. Why? It's simple. There is no controversy whatsoever. Antioxidants trap free radicals. Free radicals happen when you exercise. During normal living, oxidative stress, every time you exhale, you're creating oxidative stress. Stress creates additional oxidative stress. But you really ratchet it up when you drink alcohol, uh, when you look at your liver, your kidneys, your heart, your brain, you actually are increasing the death of those cells. Now, you start off with with 100 billion neurons, brain cells, and each time you have a heavy glass of alcohol, you can destroy a million of them, liver and kidney the same way. Watched a movie last night, very good movie. I would recommend it. I've seen a lot of good movies recently, and uh, one called The Chef and another one about food, about an Indian family moving to the French countryside and their little Indian restaurant is a hundred feet away from a classic French restaurant and it's this it's a, the title is something about a hundred feet from something brilliant movie just impeccable and I think you'd like it even Woody Allen's film I really like and I haven't liked a Woody Allen film in 30 years this one was good um Everything about it was good. The acting, the writing. It's an intelligent film. It didn't try to be funny or try to be insightful. It just was. You'll enjoy the new Woody Allen film. In any case, this film I saw last night at the Paris Theater was about the last two years of the famous swashbuckling uh, actor Errol Flynn, who starred in Robin Hood and other films. His life. It was based upon a real story. Kevin Kline nailed it. He looks like, acts like, sounds like Errol Flynn. And in it, Flynn drinks every day. Now, I, I, I was a friend of Errol Flynn's uh, next-to-last wife, Tush Wymore, down in Jamaica. And uh, she told me that he drank two quarts of vodka a day, every day, smoked three to four pack cigarettes every day. He only lived to be 49 or 50 and his whole body was racked, and he was warned he was going to die, but he drank the alcohol. Now, there's a good case, an example of you drink the alcohol, it destroys the cells. You drink a little bit of alcohol, it destroys about a million cells. But if you drink every day, you've just cut your life in half. But in this 60 Minutes piece, they talked about well, how do people live a longer life, and the people were saying, we take a lot of vitamins, and they said, well, it doesn't do any good. Yes, it does do good. And those who drank organic red wine, it does good because it has resveratrol in it. It has the healing power of the grape seed and the grape skin in it. Now, of course, if you ate the grapes or if you drank grape juice, you'd get more of it. But that's okay. But if you drank alcohol, no. Now, you're going to have a heart that's going to be damaged, arteries that are damaged, liver that's damaged, kidneys damaged. This is the latest this is uh, from Medical News Today reporting on this. Here's what it says. People drink wine for a variety of reasons. The taste, the many suspected benefits, or simply to unwind at the end of a day. But research recently published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry may give you another reason to add moderate red wine consumption to your to-do list. Improved oral health. Now, according to the study, red wine, 
is effective at combating bacteria associated with periodontal disease, which can mean gingivitis, or periodontal infections, which develops due to inadequate hygiene. The researchers used a biofilm model of plaque that included five different species of bacteria common to gum and tooth disease. The cultures were placed in red wine, both the alcohol and without alcohol, in red wine combined with grapeseed extract in water. And uh, out of all the solutions, the red wine and the wine combined with grapeseed extract, there you are again, that, that resveratrol, performed the best. Quote, our results show that red wine at moderate concentration inhibits the growth of some pathogenic species in an oral biofilm model. In lay language, it can help kill bad bacteria in your mouth. And that's good. And, you know, we want people to have good oral hygiene. Now, here's something very few people think about, and that is hygiene of cleaning your pillow or changing it completely every six months. Why? Because if you don't, it can cause allergies and acne. Quote from Prevent Disease. A good pillow is just as important as a good bed for getting a good night's sleep. You may have a favorite pillow that seems to help you sleep better, but it could cause acne and trigger allergies if it's more than six months old. Dr. Robert Oxman, director of Sleep to Live Institute in Melbourne, North Carolina, told the Huffington Post that people sleeping on old pillows might be pressing their faces against dirt, oil, and dead skin cells, which can cause acne. So, how many people change their pillows? Also, dust mites set up home in pillows and can exacerbate asthma and trigger allergic reactions. That's according to Dr. Mark Anustrom, an allergist and immunologist, Kansas City Allergy and Asthma Associates. Quote, dust mites are not parasites. Uh, they don't bite, sting, or burrow into our bodies. The harmful allergen they create comes from their fecal pellets and body fragments. Dust mites are nearly everywhere. Roughly four out of five homes in the United States have detectable levels of dust mite allergen in at least one bed. Also, these um, mites end up putting their feces on your pillow. So you end up having your face in dust mite feces. Anyhow, I wanted to test to see how hygienic some people were who I know. And uh, I, this is, goes back about a month ago. And so I said, you're... you're clean a person, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And your family is clean? Yeah. I said, well, I'm going to do this study. Okay. Clean your house as best you can. And they did. And then a person went over and pulled back the sheets and was able to show with a vacuum cleaner, with a HEPA filter, a brand new HEPA filter hadn't been used, a massive amount of dead skin cells and dust mites and bacteria and mold and fungus all on all of the family's four beds. It was also up underneath the bed 
because no one thought to clean underneath the bed. And it was on the curtains behind the beds, and it was on the windowsills. So most people today, when they clean, they don't really clean. And when they think their bed is clean, it really isn't clean. The real way to clean your bed is this. Never sleep on sheets for more than two nights. Pillowcase is the same. You should have a protective guard to your mattress. But those are not 100% effective either. You have to clean those. Take them off and vacuum the mattress underneath because your body oils and your heat will cause an absorption of your body into that, uh, your body cells, into the mattress itself. Take some rubbing alcohol, spray your mattress cover on the bed, and wipe it down with a paper towel. And you do that, oh, maybe once a month. But change your sheets every two weeks. That's an easy thing to do. Also, another study has come up on showing how cannabis can slow cancer tumor growth. And I'll share this with you. I'll quote this from Natural Society. It says, There have been numerous studies conducted proving how cannabis kills cancerous cells. Adding to the evidence, a new study from the University in Madrid, Spain, uncovers the existence of previously unknown signaling platforms responsible for cannabis' success in shrinking tumors. For the study, and then it went into human breast cells, were uh, used, and how the cannabis oil was able to kill the tumors. So it had anti-cancer properties, and it acted specifically through a family of cell receptors called cannabinoid receptors. So, it's an oil, makes a difference, breast cancer, lung cancer, brain cancer, and uh, prostate cancer. A majority of adults need to double their fruit and vegetable intake. This is from the British Journal of Nutrition and done at a health institute. And it said that, quote, a serious shortfall in the consumption of fruit and vegetables worldwide means that most adults need to eat double their current amounts to meet the World Health Organization dietary recommendations. Um, here's my thoughts on this. I believe that most adults in the United States and almost all children in the United States, all meaning probably 90%, are not eating all their fruits and vegetables uh, because they're so so programmed to eat processed foods. So my suggestion is make sure that you're getting 11 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And one of the best ways is to have it in juices. That way you know you're getting it. All right, and then with the meals that you do have, make sure you get them. For example, each morning to have a whole box of... uh, blueberries or raspberries or blackberries or pomegranate seeds and you put it into your smoothie and uh, you could even put two in there I have a shake each day before I do my noon radio program where I'll take a box of raspberries and a box of blackberries and add a little bit of fresh apple juice to it and I try to get then the skin of four different apples 
throw it all into a blender, and uh, and that is a very powerful drink, and rich in polyphenols and flavonoids, antioxidants, that help repair your DNA. So more fruits and vegetables in our diet. And I'm glad to see that there are more and more people realizing the importance of, of fresh organic juice. We're going to take a brief break and come back. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Sir Ken Robinson on our educational system. Then following that, we'll take your calls. Our number to call in is 888-874-4888, 888-874-4888. And uh, people can listen to this program on iTunes. There's multiple ways to listen, a Stitcher app and a TuneIn app, and uh, even by telephone. And when people are vacationing, frequently they'll tell me that they use the telephone. That number is 712-432-7231. 712-432-7231. That way, if you ever have trouble reaching me by listening over a regular land-based radio, or you're traveling, and or you're not near a computer, then that, that's how you get it. All right? Back in a moment. Please stay with us. How are you? It's been great, hasn't it? I have a big interest in education, and I think we all do. Uh, We have a huge vested interest in it, partly because it's education that's meant to take us into this future that we can't grasp. What the world will look like in five years' time. And yet we're meant to be educating them for it. So the unpredictability, I think, is extraordinary. And the third part of this is that we've all agreed, nonetheless, on the really... um, extraordinary capacities that children have, their capacities for innovation. I mean, Serena last night was a marvel, wasn't she? Just seeing what she could do. And she's exceptional, but I think she's not, um, so to speak, exceptional in the whole of, of childhood. What you have there is a person of extraordinary dedication who found a talent. And my contention is all kids have tremendous talents, and we squander them pretty ruthlessly. Um, So I want to talk about education, and I want to talk about creativity. My contention is that creativity now is as important in education as literacy, and we should treat it with the same status. Thank you. (laughs) 
That, that was it, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, 15 minutes left. <laughs> well, I was born... No, the... Um... I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson. She was six, and she was at the back drawing, and the, the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated. She went over to her and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> When, <laughs> when my son was four in England, actually he was four everywhere, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> for being strict about it, wherever he went, he was four that year. But he was in the nativity play. Do you remember the story? No, it's big. It's a big story. Mel Gibson did the sequel. You may have seen it. I don't know. <laughs> nativity two. But. Um, James got the part of Joseph, which we were thrilled about. We considered this to be one of the lead parts. Uh, we had the place crammed full of agents and T-shirts. You know, James Robinson is Joseph. Uh, we had... He didn't have to speak, but do you know the bit where the three kings come in? Now, they come in bearing gifts, and they, they bring gold, frankincense, and mare. This really happened. We're sitting there, and they, I think, just went out of sequence. Because we talked to the little boy afterwards and said, you know, are you okay with that? And he said, yeah, why was that wrong? They just switched. I think that was it. Anyway, the three boys came in little four-year-olds with tea towels on their heads, and they put these boxes down. The first boy said, I bring you gold. And the second boy said, I bring you mare. And the third boy said, Frank sent this. (laughs) 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 What these things have in common is that kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you will never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, They have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way. We stigmatise mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this. He said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or rather, we get educated out of it. So why is this? Uh, I lived in Stratford-on-Avon until about five years ago. In fact, we moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. So you can imagine what a seamless transition, you know, this was from (laughs) L.A. Actually, we lived in a place called Snitterfield, uh, just outside Stratford, which is where Shakespeare's father was born. Are you struck by a new thought? I was. You don't think of Shakespeare having a father, do you? Do you? Because you don't think of Shakespeare being a child. Do you? Shakespeare being seven. I never thought of it. I mean, he was seven at some point. He was in somebody's English class, wasn't he? <laughs> Do you know what I How annoying would that be? You know? <laughs> Must try harder. <laughs> the, um... 
being sent to bed by his dad, to Shakespeare, go to bed now, you know, to William Shakespeare, you know, and put the pencil down, you know, and stop speaking like that. You know, it's... It's... It's confusing everybody. <laughs> anyway, um... We moved from Stratford to Los Angeles, and I just want to say a word about the transition. Actually, my son uh, didn't want to come. I've got two kids. Uh, he's 21 now, and my daughter's 16. He didn't want to come uh, to Los Angeles. He loved it, but he had a girlfriend in England. Uh, this was the love of his life, Sarah. He'd known her for a month. <laughs> Mind you, they'd had their fourth anniversary, because <laughs> it's a long time when you're 16. Anyway, he was really upset on the plane. He said, I'll never find another girl like Sarah. And we were rather pleased about that, frankly, because <laughs> she was... <laughs> she was... She was the main reason we were leaving the country. But, uh... but something strikes you when you move to America and when you travel around the world. Every education system on Earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. Everyone, doesn't matter where you go, you think it would be otherwise, but it isn't. At the top are mathematics and languages, then the humanities, and at the bottom are the arts, everywhere on earth. And in pretty much every system, too, there's a hierarchy within the arts. Art and music are normally given a higher status in schools than drama and dance. There isn't an education system on the planet that teaches dance every day to children the way we teach them mathematics. Why? Why not? I think this is rather important. I think maths is very important, but so is dance. Children dance all the time, if they're allowed to. We all do. We all have bodies, don't we? Yeah. Did I miss a meeting? I mean, I think... <laughs> Truthfully, what happens is, as children grow up, we start to educate them progressively from the waist up. And then we focus on their heads, and slightly to one side. If you were to visit education as an alien and say, what's it for, public education... I think you'd have to conclude, if you look at the output, you know, who really succeeds by this? Who does everything they should? Who gets all the brownie points? You know, who are the winners? I think you'd have to conclude the whole purpose of public education throughout the world is to produce university professors. Isn't it? They're the people who come out the top. And I, I used to be one. So there. You know. <laughs> but... And I like university professors, but, you know, we shouldn't hold them up as the, uh, the, the high watermark of all human achievement. They're just a form of life. You know, another form of life. But they're rather curious, and I say this out of affection for them. There's something curious about professors. In my experience, not all of them, but typically, they live in their heads. They live up there and slightly to one side. They're disembodied, you know, in a kind of literal way. You know, they, they look upon their body as a form of transport for their heads. <laughs> You know, it's... Don't they? It's a way of getting their head to meetings. <laughs> if you want real evidence of out-of-body experiences, by the way, get yourself along to a residential conference for senior academics and pop into the discotheque on the final night. <laughs> and <laughs> there you will see it. Grown men and women writhing uncontrollably. <laughs> off the beat. Wait until it ends so they can go home and write a paper about it. <laughs> now, our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. 
So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the, the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked, on the ground you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, benign advice. Now, profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities design the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not. Because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatised. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about, technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. Suddenly, degrees aren't worth anything. Isn't that true? When I was a student, if you had a degree, you had a job. If you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one, frankly. So, um, But now, kids with, with degrees are often heading home uh, to carry on playing video games. Because you need an MA, where the previous job required a BA, and now you need a PhD for the other. It's a process of academic inflation. And it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence. We know three things about intelligence. One, it's diverse. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it. We think visually, we think in sound, we think kinesthetically. Uh, we think in abstract terms, we think in movement. Secondly, intelligence is dynamic. If you look at the interactions of a human brain, as we heard yesterday from a number of presentations, intelligence is wonderfully interactive. The brain isn't divided into compartments. In fact, creativity, which I define as the process of having original ideas that have value, more often than not, comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. The brain is intensely... By the way, there's a shaft of nerves that joins the two halves of the brain called the corpus callosum. It's thicker in women. Following on from Helen yesterday, I think this is probably why women are better at multitasking. Because you are. Aren't you? There's a raft of research, but I know it from my personal life. If my wife is cooking a meal at home, which is not often, <laughs> thankfully, but, you know, if she's doing... <laughs> <laughs> no, she's good at some things. But if she's cooking, you know, she's dealing with people on the phone, she's talking to the kids, she's painting the ceiling, you know, she's <laughs> doing open-heart surgery over here. If I'm cooking, the door is shut, the kids are out, the phone's on the hook. If she comes in, I get annoyed. I say, Terry, please, I'm trying to fry an egg in here. You know, really. <laughs> give, give me a break. Actually, there was a, do you know that old philosophical thing? If a tree falls in a, in a forest and nobody hears it, did it happen? Remember that old chestnut? I saw a great T-shirt, really, recently, which said, um, if a man speaks his mind in a forest and no woman hears him, is he still wrong? <laughs> and the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct. I, I'm doing a new book at the moment called Epiphany, which is uh, based on a series of interviews with people about how they discovered their talent. I'm fascinated by how people got to be there. Uh, it's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who may, most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer, and everybody knows her work. She did Cats. 
and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England, as you can see. And uh, anyway, Jill and I had lunch one day. I said, how did you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Gillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD hadn't been invented you know, at this point, so it wasn't an available condition. You know, people, people, people weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist. So this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother, and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end, and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late and so on, a little kid of eight. In the end, uh, the, uh, the doctor went and sat next to Gillian and said, Gillian, I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. So she said, he, he said, wait here, we'll be back. We won't be very long. And, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out of the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out of the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room, she said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? said, she did. I can't tell you so how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move to think. Who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist. She had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School, found her own company, the Gillian Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history. She's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multimillionaire. Somebody else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. <laughs> now, I think... What I think it comes to is this. Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we strip-mined the earth for a particular commodity, and for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And, our... and that is Sir Ken Robinson and about the failure of our educational system. And today I think our educational system is absolutely abysmal. It's a wonder anyone gets through it. Uh, with anything that is able to stimulate them at a level that 
allows them to see how unique they are and how that unique contribution can help society. We're going to take some calls, 888-874-4888, have an environmental segment, have a war on poverty segment. Let's say hello to Don from New Jersey. Hi, Don, you're on the air. Speak up, Don, you're on the air. No? It's not there? Okay. She must hung up. All right. If you want to call in and be on the air, you can. Let's go to the environmental segment first. This is a a very important report from the UN panel, and uh, this is what they have to say. They say that the future of the environment is severe, pervasive, irreversible, devastating climate change. Quote from, this is from the 127-page document, it paints a harsh warning, this according to Associated Press, of what's causing global warming and what it will do to humans and the environment. It also describes what can be done about it. Quote, continued emissions of greenhouse gases will cause further warming and long-lasting changes in all components of the climate system, increasing the likelihood of severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. Okay, well... I do not see any capacity at this time to change any of this. I don't believe that we have any political will, nor do those people who are causing most of the environmental greenhouse gases and environmental destruction, the pollution of our water, they don't have any economic incentive to change, and as a result, they won't. I believe that the only thing we can do is first become conscious of what's wrong with the environment. We have hundreds of articles on the environment posted. Uh, I must have posted a hundred different pieces myself today alone. Uh, So anything that's important on the environment, what's causing a problem and what we can do to reverse it, we post it. Educate yourself. Start with something simple. Go to my website and watch. It's free as a public service. I haven't charged anyone to watch this. The Seeds of Death about genetically engineered foods. We all have to eat. And if people are not aware of how dangerous genetically engineered foods are and the companies promoting them who want to control the food that we eat because whoever controls the food controls life on the planet. And so you'll understand by reading the articles, watching the documentary, and passing it on to people. Share it with as many people as you know. It's called Seas of Death. Uh, that's important. Also watch uh, Knocking on the Devil's Door. Everything that we said in that documentary is absolutely correct. It's even worse. We've just been told today that the head of the uh, energy panel of reporting to the news media in Japan is a close friend of the prime minister, and he's one of the good old boys. And people want to tell us the truth about how bad Fukushima actually is and how much radiation is spilling off into Japan and how it's impacting kids and adults there, those two people have been fired. Good reporters are not allowed to report. In fact, they've just passed a law against all whistleblowing in Japan. Are you aware of that? If you report any story that is adverse to the government, that shows the government in a bad light, any department, any agency, any individual, you could go to jail for years. And yet there's nothing on that in the United States, nor any protest. So uh, radiation, nuclear power, genetic engineering, 
watch these and educate yourself. Then just become very conscientious. Wherever possible, buy locally grown organic produce. Use paper instead of plastic. Become conscious of real green purchasing from the detergents you use. Green, biodegradable, toothpaste, shampoos, anything and everything. And there's green everything today, so that's good. Then, uh, then start to spread your information out in different areas and look for the coalitions that are trying to make a difference. What we need is we need a group of progressive, populist-based politicians. We only have a couple. Alan Grayson of Florida is one uh, who would do the right thing. Some will do the right thing on some issues, but not on others. And get over this whole idea that Elizabeth Warren is the right ticket. She is not. She's a corporate Democrat and proud of it, much like the people running for governor in New York State. With the exception of Randy Credico, they're all corporate Democrats running against uh, Akiomo, who is a corporate Democrat or a corporate liberal. So we need Rocky Andersons. We need Jill Steins. We need Ralph Nader, Dennis Kucinich, even Ron Paul on these issues. Some I agree with, some I disagree with. But we don't have any of these right now, and we need them. So it's, it's beholding to us to align ourselves to get people in positions of power. He can either block legislation that's not good, use their position to inform the public of what's going on in Congress, or to suggest legislation that is important. And then sooner or later, the public is just going to have to go off the grid of supporting everything that we now support. If you stop shopping in their stores, like Walmart, Kmart, you stop, you stop watching their television, stop reading their magazines, stop supporting their entertainment, take your money out of their banks, then they'll feel it. If you're a retired then don't allow your pension to invest in something that is not sustainable and humane. Hundreds of billions of dollars are in pensions, and the hedge funds, hedge funds and the other investment groups take your money and invest it any way they want. And people are more concerned about how much they're getting on their return rather than is this an ethical and moral investment. That's how I would deal with the environment. At least when you become a vegan, you're not causing the pain and destruction of an animal. You don't need to eat anything of flesh of any kind. No dairy from a cow, no flesh from any animal in order to be completely healthy. In fact, all the studies, every single study shows that being a healthy vegan, because you can be an unhealthy vegan like a lot of teenagers are, but a healthy vegan, you can add about nine years onto your lifespan. So, because they're not treating the methane then, because you're not buying them. So that's a big way of approaching that. This is, uh, this is from Tom Edsall from the New York Times uh, op-ed, The Expanding World of Poverty, Capitalism. Let me quote this and I'll share my suggestions. In Orange County, California, the probation department's supervised electronic confinement program, which monitors the movements of low-risk offenders, has been outsourced to a private company. 
Sentinel Offender Services, the company by its own account oversees case management, including breath alcohol and drug testing services, at all at no cost to county taxpayers. Sentinel makes its money by getting the offenders on probation to pay for the company's services, and charges can range from $35 to $100 a month. The company boasts of having contracts with more than 200 governmental agencies and takes pride in the development of offender-funded programs where any of their services can be provided at no cost to the agency, but sure does cost the people. And um, Sentinel is part of an expanding universe of poverty capitalism. In this unique sector of the economy, cost of essential government services are shifted to the poor. In terms of food, housing, and other essentials, the cost of being poor has always been exorbitant. Landlords, grocery stores, and other commercial enterprises have all found ways to profit from those at the bottom of the ladder. The recent drive towards privatization of government functions has turned traditional public services into profit-making enterprises as well. In addition to probation, municipal court systems are also turning collections over to a national network of companies like Sentinel that profit from services, service charges imposed on the men and women who are under court order to pay fees and fines, including traffic tickets, with the fees being sums tacked on by the court to fund administrative services. When they cannot pay these assessed fees and fines, plus collection charges imposed by the private companies, offenders can be sent to jail. There are many documented cases in which courts have imprisoned those who failed to keep up with their combined fines, fees, and service charges. Quote, these companies are bill collectors, but they are given the authority to say to someone, if he doesn't pay, he's going to jail. That's a lawyer, John Long, from Augusta, Georgia. In February this year, a report by Human Rights Watch on private offender services found, quote, more than 1,000 courts and several U.S. state delegate tremendous coercive power to companies that are often subject to little meaningful oversight or regulation. In many cases, the only reason people are put on probation is because they need time to pay off fines and court costs linked to minor crimes. In some cases, probation companies act more like abusive debt collectors than probation officers, charging the debtor for their services. How many of them are there? Well, with Georgia, there are 648 of these special courts, and they assign 250,000 cases to private probation companies. And there's no transparency. So what does this mean in lay language? Why should you be concerned? Because what this means is the return of debtors' prison. Also, on tomorrow's program, I'll deal with um, all the laws that are on the books, including ancient laws, that everyone is breaking some crime based upon these laws. And the government can now see with your into your computer, into your life, listen to your phone calls, and know whether or not you broke any of these laws and can use that against you, and have. So let's just say that real story. A uh, a woman's son was late to school repeatedly or didn't show up once. And so they came and arrested the mother because of the truancy of her son. She didn't have any money. She was sent into prison, the po poverty prison, you know, debtor's prison. And she was charged for each day she was there for the food, bismol as it is. Uh, and also then all these court costs, private company. A probation officer, 
And if you can't make your probation bills, they can throw you back in jail and it all starts all over again. You're charged for being there. You're charged every day you're there, but you're already poor. This woman had seven children. She was had no capacity to pay this fine, and she ended up dying of a heart attack in jail after seven days. Another man was given a fine because he was sitting on his porch having a beer on his porch. They gave him a fine, a citation, that he had to pay uh, for uh, alcohol in a public place. If you spit on the sidewalk, you could go to jail. If you jaywalk, you can go to jail. There's a, uh, there's a video on my website, on my Facebook, where a Arizona professor, a woman, a black woman, is crossing the street, a small street, on the college campus with a lot of other students, but she's the one that this police officer decides to arrest and then slams her into the ground and does that whole, you know, excessive force thing. Why? Because of jaywalking? We have criminalized trivia. We have and especially focused upon the poor and the, the black, people of color, Latinos, and in their neighborhoods. You do not see this in affluent neighborhoods ever or to their children. You sure do elsewhere. And so now a person that never had a criminal record, hadn't done any uh, crime against humanity at all, now they have a record. Now they have to pay these fines. Now every time they go see a probation officer, a private probation officer, they have to pay a fee for that. And if they can't afford it, then they're sent to jail. This is the problem. The criminalization of being poor, and we're watching all this as if this doesn't matter. It does. And that's the problem. But when was the last time you heard any legislators complaining or anyone in the media complaining or showing you how many people, millions of people, are either arrested or fined or given summonses for things that in bygone times someone will say, you know, don't do it again and go on, jaywalk. So what? If you walk against the light, if you step into a street waiting for the light to change, that's a violation. If you walk before the light has turned, that's a violation. Well, go to any block in New York City and you'll see people doing it constantly. And yet, they're not aware that in some cases that can happen. They can be fined and are. Also, asset forfeiture. A couple, true story, just happened. A couple had a son that got $20 worth of an illicit drug. So... They went into the house, found the drug, and arrested the son. But two weeks later, they told the parents they had an hour to get out of the house. The police department had confiscated their house, all their belongings, everything. They can do that now. It's legal. The parents are now sleeping on friends' couches. One moment you have a house, the next moment you're out of your house. That's how bad it is, and it's going to get worse. So shouldn't we pay attention to the over-policing, the, over, the overwhelming um, authoritarian way that we the people are being treated? Or we can simply deny it's important until it happens to us. We're out of time. I want to thank you all for listening in. I look forward to sharing more tomorrow. Have a nice day, everyone.